Let me invite you to join me once again in our studies in the final three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, where today we come to the very last of those chapters, Matthew chapter 28. And we will begin reading in verse 1. So Matthew 28, verses 1 through 17. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Lord, pray today that we would see Jesus in your word and that we would worship him and that you would drive away our doubts and give us assurance, full assurance of faith today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I hope that many of you have benefited from and even enjoyed our recent studies in these latter chapters of Matthew's Gospel. I hope that the sufferings of Christ and the word of the cross have been sweet music to your ears and honey to your taste in these weeks. But we also have to admit that chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew's Gospel are not easy reading. Because they are filled with themes which, if you were to try to paint them on canvas, would force you to the darkest end of the color palette. Now, of course, the second commandment teaches us not to attempt to portray the Lord visually, not to worship any likeness of God, not even to make 
such likenesses, Exodus chapter 20, and I urge you to take that command seriously and not to make or buy or possess images of the Lord himself. But with that said, if you were simply to try and paint Christ's surroundings in chapters 26 and 27, if you were to try and put on canvas, for instance, Judas's tryst with the chief priests in which he determined to betray his master for 30 pieces of silver, or if you were to try and paint Peter's denials in the courtyard of the high priest, ramping up to the level of cursing and swearing, or the jealousy burned deep into the eyes of the Jewish leaders, or the waffling back and forth on the face of Pilate, or the angry faces of the crowds chanting, crucify him. If you were to try to to put on canvas those cruel nails in the hands of the Roman soldiers as they readied them to drive through Jesus' flesh, or the surreal darkness that literally overspread the land during the last three hours of Jesus' suffering. If you were to try to portray any of these scenes with a paintbrush, you would be forced to fill your palette with the darkest of earth tones. So somber are the events that we have seen unfold in recent weeks in chapters 26 and 27. But Matthew chapter 28 requires an entirely different spectrum of color, does it not? In order to portray the light and the glory and the joy of this chapter, you almost have to throw out your old palette and start with a whole new set of paints. Because when the two Marys arrived at the tomb early on that Sunday morning, they heard the angel say to them those marvelous words, He is not here, verse 6, for he has risen. He has risen. And the whole world takes on a new aspect. And the bright colors of cheer pour onto the canvas when we hear and believe that good news. We don't worship a dead Savior this morning. We don't gather on Friday afternoons to remember a departed martyr or to memorialize a fallen hero. No, we gather on Sunday mornings to sing the praises of one who can actually hear us of one who has risen, just as he said. Death is no longer master over him, for he has risen. And that makes all the difference, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15. The fact that Christ has risen makes all the difference between a faith that is real and vital and a faith that is pitiable and worthless if Christ is still lying in a tomb somewhere. And so I say to you that we have reason to celebrate this morning, reason to rejoice, reason to break out the bright colors when we come to Matthew chapter 28 and gaze into the empty tomb because Jesus is not inside. He has risen. And as we consider Christ's resurrection this morning, I just want to do so under five headings. Three of them will come directly from the verses we just read here in chapter 28, and two of them I'll draw primarily from elsewhere in the Bible. So let me say, first of all, that there is great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There is great evidence that he has risen. And this is so important for us to notice. None of the gospel writers, neither Matthew, nor Luke, nor Mark, nor John, none of the four record the resurrection of Christ in vague, legendary terms. 
They do not relate the account of Jesus like one of Aesop's fables, as though it were simply a fantastic story that took place somewhere, sometime, in some place, and has a great lesson to be learned with it. No, the gospel writers are interested in historical facts. They name eyewitnesses. They record various post-resurrection appearances so as to give evidence for the fact that this thing really did happen. And we see that interest in evidence here in Matthew chapter 28. First of all, in the report of the empty tomb in verse 6. Jesus was not there. The tomb had been vacated. And Matthew doesn't just say that the tomb was empty. He doesn't just say that Jesus wasn't there. He actually presents evidence. He presents witnesses to corroborate these facts. The two Marys, of course, are witnesses in verses 1 through 7. But there are other witnesses, too, in verses 11 through 15. Did you notice how not even Jesus' opponents could gainsay the fact that the tomb was empty? That's why they had to invent that fanciful story in verses 11 through 15 about the body being stolen. Now, we said last week, the very fact that the Jewish leaders themselves had secured the tomb and set a Roman guard at its mouth, chapter 27, verse 66, the very fact that these men made it virtually impossible for the disciples to have stolen the body makes their stolen body claim here in chapter 28 seem quite far-fetched. But the point I'm making today is that the very fact that they had to circulate this rumor about a stolen body demonstrates that they acknowledged that the body wasn't there. They acknowledged, Jesus' enemies acknowledged that the tomb really was empty. These men desperately wanted to quell reports of a resurrection whispering their way through the streets of Jerusalem. But in their attempt to try and silence those reports, note well that the Jewish leaders did not produce a body. They merely produced a story about what happened to the body. And by doing so, they acknowledged that the tomb really was empty. And praise God, Matthew has recorded their testimony for us. For in doing so, he leaves us with little room to doubt the fact of the empty tomb. And of course, the chief priests aren't the only ones who serve as witnesses of the empty tomb. Matthew also brings forward the eyewitness uh, accounts of these two Marys. They too could testify that the body of Jesus was gone on that first Sunday morning after his crucifixion because they saw with their own two eyes the place where he was lying in verse 6. These two Marys had been there, you may remember from chapter 27, verse 61. They had been there to see his body go into the tomb. And now they return on the third day to see that the body is absent from the tomb. They could testify that he really did go into that tomb. And they could testify that he really wasn't there on the Sunday morning. And again, I say that Matthew is interested in this sort of documentation. He's not simply telling a tale He is reporting factual detail. And so he brings forth Mary and Mary as eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. And not of the empty tomb only, but Matthew tells us in verses 9 and 10 that these two women actually met Jesus and touched Jesus and heard his voice after his resurrection. And all this is very interesting particularly the fact that Matthew's two star witnesses are women. 
Many people have pointed out that due to the cultural norms in that time and that place, the testimony of women was not considered valuable in the same way as the testimony of men. And so in a courtroom and so on, a women's testimony wouldn't be very highly thought of. It's to be hoped that we no longer think that way, and if we don't, then that's progress. But that was the attitude then. The testimony of women was not as valuable as that of men. And therefore, it's also been pointed out that if you were someone like Matthew, and you were attempting to fabricate a resurrection hoax, the last thing you would do is make up a story such that the two most crucial witnesses of the resurrection would be women. Because many people would look askance at your story immediately, simply because of the female testimony upon which it's based. And so the only way you would bring two women as your star witnesses The only reason you would say that two women were actually the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection would be if you were simply reporting the events as they actually took place. You see what I'm getting at? The fact that Matthew's first two witnesses are both named Mary strongly suggests that Matthew wasn't trying to fabricate a really good hoax, but rather that he is just reporting the history as it happened. And so the female nature of these two witnesses is further evidence that the report Matthew gives must be a true one. And then there were other eyewitnesses as well. In verses 16 and 17, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, and in verse 17, they saw him. The 11 disciples saw him. Now, it's true some of them were doubtful, but they wouldn't remain so for long because this wasn't the only time that they saw him. And so now Matthew has given us 13 eyewitnesses whose names we know, two of them women, plus the testimony of the chief priests who at the very least admitted that the tomb was empty. And there's more evidence that could be gathered from other portions of the New Testament. And all of it forces us to ask, how was it that the tomb was empty? And how likely is it that so many witnesses would all agree to fabricate a tale like this one, especially when this Jesus, whose fame they are promoting, has just been executed in this city as a criminal? Would so many of people have put their own safety at risk for the sake of a mere hoax? Or does the evidence that the New Testament piles up and the eyewitness reports lead us to the conclusion that the resurrection story must be true? That Christ really did rise from the dead on the third day and that that's why the tomb was empty. It has to be the latter, it seems to me. And that has been the thrust of this first point this morning. There is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But then let me say that there is also widespread denial of the resurrection of Jesus. There is denial of the fact that he has risen And much of the time, this denial has very little to do with the evidence. The chief priests had the same information before them as you and I have this morning, did they not? They knew that the body hadn't been stolen. Indeed, they surely had to have known that something miraculous had happened as well. Because after all, it seems probable that the guards who saw the angel roll away the stone in verses 2 through 4 were the same men who came in verse 11 and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. 
And so the chief priests had probably heard not only that the tomb was empty, but they'd probably heard about the earthquake and about the angel too. And so even if Jesus himself did not appear to these chief priests, they had ample evidence with which to conclude that perhaps he really was alive after all. But there's no indication given in verses 11 through 15 that they even considered that possibility, much less investigated the evidence. Why not? Well, presumably because they had a vested interest in denying that these things were so. The chief priests did not believe in the resurrection of Christ, not because they didn't have enough evidence, but because they had a vested interest in not believing. If they admitted that Jesus was alive, they'd have to eat a lot of crow. And not only that, but they would have to admit that they were guilty of murdering the Messiah. And they'd have to give up their positions of ascendancy among God's people. And like groomsmen, they'd have to step out of the way and make room for the groom himself. But they had no interest in doing any of those things. And so they denied the resurrection, not based on evidence, but based on expediency and personal interests and selfish desires. And I submit to you that this is why many people deny the claims of Christ to this day. Now, are there people who have genuine doubts about the resurrection of Christ and his claim to be God and so on? Many people who struggle to wrestle through the evidence? Absolutely there are. But there are also many people who do not believe, not because they've carefully weighed up the evidence and found it deficient, but because they're already biased towards unbelief. They're not convinced by the sort of evidence that's presented in the four Gospels because they don't want to be convinced. And the reason why many people don't want to be convinced is because if Jesus really is alive, if he really did rise from the dead, and I admit that I believe that that is so, well, then I'm going to have to start to change some things. I'm going to have to submit to his lordship. I'm going to have to probably repent a great deal. If I admit that this man who claimed to be the son of God and rose from the dead really did rise from the dead. And rather than hassle with all that, it's easier just to say, oh, that's a hoax. Nobody believes that. Maybe it's a fable. It has some some good points to learn from it. But it's certainly not verifiable fact upon which we should base our whole lives. I'm not going to spend my time researching that. I know that it's not possible. Now, let me say that that line of reasoning may often be buried deep within a person's subconsciousness. In other words, not everyone who denies the resurrection because they simply don't want to deal with the facts and with their own sin, not everyone that does that perhaps realizes that that's what's going on in their hearts. But as Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Deceitful enough that our desire to continue in sin can keep us from wanting to know the truth, even if we don't realize that that's what's happening to us. And so what I'm saying this morning is, even in spite of the evidence that we have seen today, and in spite of more exhibits that could be placed on the table, do not be surprised that many a person in whom you, or with whom you share the gospel, many a person with whom you share workspace will balk at these things, and that some of them may even oppose them vehemently. Why? Because the heart is more deceitful than all else. And also because there really is an enemy of our souls. There really is a devil 
who does everything in his power to incite unbelief and to distract us from the truth. And because of these two things, the deceitfulness of our own hearts and our adversary, the devil, until Christ returns, there will always be among many in this world a denial of the resurrection. Don't let that shake your faith. You continue to look at the evidence. And then thirdly, I want you to see that for those of us who believe, for those of us who do not deny the resurrection, there is also great joy in the fact that he has risen. There is great joy in the resurrection of Jesus. After all, look at these women in verse 8. They left the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Fear, yes, but also great joy. The resurrection gives us reason to hope and reason to sing and reason to be merry, does it not? Death has been defeated. It has been robbed of its sting. And Christ is alive. We don't have to face the prospect of never seeing our Jesus again. He is more to us than just a memory or a story in a book. He is living. And when we do remember him, which we should, we don't have to think of him only in his bloody, bruised, lacerated form. Because all of the darkness of chapters 26 and 27 has given way to the bright hues of life and sunshine and renewal and hope and joy in chapter 28. They left the tomb with fear and great joy. And it is perhaps not insignificant that the women arrived at Jesus' tomb that first Easter Sunday morning, quote, as it began to dawn, verse 1. As it began to dawn. Now, that shows us, of course, how eager they were to get there, to minister to their friend's body, eager enough to arrive at first light. But maybe also in the providence of God, this little detail played out as it did, that they arrived as it began to dawn, because with the resurrection of Jesus, the light began to dawn and the sun began to rise in a far more significant way than can be observed simply by looking at the daily horizon. With the resurrection of Jesus, the darkness of the prior two days, the darkness of doubt, the darkness of Satan's apparent victory, all began to give way to a whole new dawn of joy. This is why Christians gather on the first day of the week to lift our praises to the Lord because it was on the first day of the week that Christ rose from the dead and gave us such a marvelous reason to sing. And so I tell you, the resurrection is a doctrine that should bring us great joy. And we hear it in the resurrection songs that we sing, do we not? See What a Morning by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. Christ the Lord is Risen Today by Charles Wesley. Robert Lowry's Up from the Grave He Arose. There's a reason why those songs are all upbeat. Because that's how we should be when we remember that the tomb is empty and that Jesus has risen. These women in verse 8 instinctively got this. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. And before we leave this point, notice that they couldn't keep their joy to themselves either in verse 8. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it. 
to his disciples. And I hope your heartbeat is the same. I hope that you're eager to tell others, your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, your extended family over the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you're eager to run and report the news about our risen Savior. I hope you will join with these women and have a joy that cannot be contained. The great joy that he has risen. Then fourthly, there's great evidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Great evidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of you might be thinking, didn't you already make this point a few minutes ago? Wasn't that your first point? Not exactly. My first point was that there is great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Great evidence that it really did happen. Great evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Great evidence for the resurrection. But this fourth point is that there is great evidence in the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, the first point was as much to say that there are many facts that demonstrate that the resurrection actually happened. There is evidence for it. But this fourth point is that the resurrection itself is also a fact. The resurrection itself is also a piece of evidence that demonstrates something in its own right. And what does the resurrection demonstrate? What are the truths for which the resurrection gives evidence? Well, here's where I want to step outside of Matthew 28 for a few moments and take you now to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, which tells us, that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. How do we know that Jesus really is who he said he was? He claimed to be the Messiah, did he not? The Son of Man. He claimed to be a king. He claimed to be the very Son of God. He claimed to be God Himself, in fact, taking God's own personal name upon His lips, I Am, and applying it to Himself on multiple occasions. But how do we know all that is true? How do we know that He wasn't just a great teacher, as so many people style Him today? How do we know that Jesus wasn't different from any other religious guru who comes along and either claims or his followers claim that he is some sort of Messiah figure? What makes us sure that Jesus really is the Messiah? That he really is who he said he was? The King? The Son of God? Well, because of what we read here in Matthew 28, that's what makes us sure. And because of what we read in Mark 16 and Luke 24 and the last two chapters of John's Gospel as well. That's how we know he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. This is how we know that Jesus was more than just a great teacher. This is how we know that he really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And on a similar but not identical train of thought, this is what makes Jesus and Christianity different from all the other religions and all the other religious prophets and founders of different faiths. Jesus walked out of the grave. And so I dare say to you that you should listen to him more than to any other teacher who still lies in the dust. There's great evidence in the resurrection of Jesus, evidence that he really is God's beloved son and that we should therefore listen to him. Are you listening? Are you listening to Jesus? 
I cannot present you with, nor can you dig up anyone else this morning who is so worthy of your attention as this man who rose on the third day. All the talking heads, all the songwriters, all the politicians, all the religious personas, all the experts in marketing from whom many of us had adopted, have adopted so much of our worldview, every one of them will someday soon lie helpless in the dust. But Jesus is not there. He has risen, just as he said. And in so doing, he has been proved to be the Son of God. Who else but the Son of God could say what Jesus says down in Matthew 28, 18? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Isn't that one of the most audacious claims you ever heard? Who says such a thing? All authority has been given to me. Not in this house, not in this building, not in this church, not in this business, not in this state, not in this nation. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Who can say that? Well, when the one who said it walked out of the grave alive, then we sit up and notice. And I hope we bow to his authority. And so I say to you that there is great evidence in the resurrection of Jesus. That he really is and he really was who he claimed to be. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And then finally, let us remember that there is great promise in the resurrection of Jesus as well. Great promise in the fact that he has risen. If Jesus really is alive, then the whole future of our lives, the whole future of mankind, the whole future of this universe is different than it might have been. Because, for instance, if Jesus really is alive, well, then he can really fulfill his promise in verse 20 to be with you even to the end of the age. Isn't that a marvelous promise? Wherever the Lord's providence takes you, whether it be to the ends of the earth to fulfill the great commission of verse 19, or whether it be to the end of your rope with depression and anxiety and fear, the Lord Jesus promises to be with you always. When you're in a hospital bed, when you're at the graveside, when you're imprisoned for your faith, when you are widowed and alone, when you're in the Alzheimer's unit, when you're in the psych ward, when you're in the unemployment line, and when you're on the top of the mountain, if you belong to Jesus, the promise is the same. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But I submit to you that Jesus can be with you because Jesus is alive. Jesus can be with you because Jesus is alive. And so there is great promise and great hope In the resurrection account in Matthew 28, we do not memorialize a dead Savior, but are accompanied all our days by a living one. And not only does the resurrection hold out the promise of Christ's presence with us, even to the end of the age, but the resurrection also contains within it God's power to raise us from the dead too. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 6? We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised 
from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. I think Paul is writing there about the newness of life that we have now if we belong to Jesus. A new heart, new spiritual desires, a new way of living, a new spiritual family, and so on. And that newness of life, he says, comes from the same power and glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead. Because he gained new life, so do we, even in the here and now. And Paul will also go on to point out in the book of 1 Corinthians that this principle holds true for the there and then as well. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of those who are asleep. And what are first fruits? Well, they're just that, aren't they? They're the first fruits that sprout from the tree and ripen and are plucked off of it first. But the fact that they are first implies that there will be second and third. That there will be more fruit to grow and more fruit to ripen and more fruit to be picked. And that's what Paul says about the resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. But there will be more fruit. The fact that Christ rose from the dead, the first flower to be plucked from the cemetery garden, is evidence that there will be more flowers plucked. More bodies raised, more victory over death, more of what makes chapter 28 so colorful and so bright. Wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of our resurrection with him, both here and now and also there and then. And what a day that will be. And what a Savior I have to offer you again this morning. One who died for his people standing in our place at the bar of God's justice and absorbing all of God's wrath against our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And not only did he die for us, but he is alive forevermore, risen from the grave, a resurrection that has been evidenced by many convincing proofs, a resurrection that is denied by many and yet brings great joy to those who believe. A resurrection that bears powerful testimony that Jesus really is the Son of God. And a resurrection that is pregnant with promise. The promise that because Christ is alive, he really can be with us always, even to the end of the age. And the promise that because he is alive, so we too will walk in newness of life. Do you know this risen Jesus? Do you know the power of his resurrection? I urge you to come to him today and to find in him everything that you need. You and I lack so much. We are so poor. But we find in him everything that we need. And when we do, and if you have, then you have every reason to sing with me now and to leave this place today with great joy.